You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. So before I bring our guest on today, and since we're going to be talking about California, I'd like to share a little bit of background with you and why you should probably care about what happens in California. I used to have a fondness for California, and my fondness came from the fact that I've got a lot of family out there, and I was actually born out there before moving to Arizona as a kid. I used to occasionally go there for long weekends at the beach uh, up until my early 20s, and it used to be, to me at least, an awesome state. However, for the last 30 years or so, California has changed. And now that I live on the East Coast, I've been able to watch it from afar as the politics in the state have made living there unbearable for a lot of people. And that's in large measure why there are so many people moving out of the state in, in fact, more businesses and people moved out of the state in 2021 that are moving into it. Now, over the last decade or so, whenever I've written a post about California, it's usually been to point out the idiocy of the legislature and the effects that the, it has on the residents of California. And that brings us to our guest today. So here's a little background as to why I invited our guest on and why no matter where you live, you should probably take heed. People across the United States should view California as a canary in the coal mine, so to speak. It's the Petri dish, and I say this a lot, this, it's the Petri dish of bad ideas. And like it's businesses and population that are leaving the state, so are its bad ideas. For example, a couple of weeks ago when I spoke with Pfeiffer freelancers Kim Caven and Lisa Rothstein, they noted that almost as soon as the ABC test passed in California, it was introduced in New Jersey. So it literally went from bad idea in California to bad idea on the East Coast. And they also are trying to pass it in the PRO Act. So just kind of keep that in mind as I talk to our guest today. So here's how I found our guest. And this was really by chance. Late last week, I saw an article where California has a ballot initiative that will likely go on to the November ballots to raise California's minimum wage to $18 an hour. And it was kind of interesting. So as I began to do a post on it for laborunionnews.com and was pulling source materials, I came across something called the California Book of Exoduses, which is published by a group called the California Policy Center. Now, as I dug around on their website, I learned that the California Policy Center is an educational non-for-profit working for the prosperity of all Californians, according to their website, by eliminating public sector barriers to freedom. So late Friday night and into uh, Saturday morning, I reached out to the CPC on Twitter and was able to connect to Lance Christensen, CPC's Vice President of Government Affairs, to see if he could come on Labor Relations Radio, and thankfully he could on pretty short notice. Now, Lance Christensen has been involved in California politics for a long time. First, he's based in Sacramento, and he worked as a legislative consultant in the California State Senate, as well as a finance budget analyst at the Department of Finance. 
More recently, Lance served as chief of staff and senior policy advisor to California State Senator John Morlack. As such, he's dealt with every major policy issue confronting the state legislature. Much of his work has centered on addressing the state's most difficult challenges, uh, unsustainable government budgets, failing infrastructure, uh, inadequate education system, broken retirement promises, and the mental health laws. Outside of government, Christensen served as director of the Pension Reform Project for the Reason Foundation, setting the stage for major reforms in state and local retirement fundings across the country. His work on state municipal fiscal policy has been published in national and local publications. He's got his bachelor's degree in in English, and he earned that at uh, Brigham Young University. And he's got a master's degree in public policy from Pepperdine University's School of Public Policy. So I was pleased that he could come on on such short notice. And without further ado, here's Lance. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So Lance Christensen, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. It's good to have you on such short notice. I appreciate the time, Peter. So I was giving you a little background. I, I We don't know each other at all, really, other than I found you guys um, last week and, well, Friday and then over the weekend uh, as I was doing a post about the effort to raise California's minimum wage to $18 an hour. And the individual behind it, I think, wants to take it up to 20 or 25 The, the I think million. he's not ambitious enough. He really needs to think about $50 an hour. Right. Uh, maybe 75, you know, at some point in time, inflation is going to kill us. So we might as well go for the whole goose uh, at this point. Well, it was interesting as I was, as I was doing the post about it, um, I found your site and you have on your post a um, thing called the Book of Exoduses or the, the California Book of Exoduses, which is, I think, a uh, it's a spreadsheet, if you will, of all the businesses. And I don't know if you really get into the people, but some of the more famous people leaving the state, right? Yeah. And as much as we have a bona fide business that has either been based in or worked largely out of California and has taken their workforce, their headquarters, production, other things, and left and gone to another state, Texas, Tennessee, Idaho, South Carolina, Florida, wherever, we try to note that. And it's been interesting over the last couple of years because a lot of what's happened on the left is the Democrats in the legislature has basically said, we're going to continue to build a whole bunch of regulations and increase taxes and other burdens and think that people are going to stay here because we incentivize certain kinds of businesses to stay here, green businesses and, and the like. And yet what happens is they take the money the businesses do um and they pick up and they leave a lot of times or the ones that have been here a long time just recognize there's not a long-term business plan for them here in california and so they're making the move to other places where the the grass is greener where the costs are lower and where their people can actually afford to buy a house or go to a good school and so the book of exodus is kind of a play on the uh the the bible stories of people leaving um, right Egypt and, and going to the new and promised lands. And it's unfortunate it's not California anymore. It's a, re, it's a reversal of what happened during the Dust Bowl when we had all the people from Oklahoma and Texas and the, the Dust Bowl make their way to California and, and really make the state what it was. Yeah. So let's back up for a second. What does the Cal, uh, California Policy Center do? 
California Policy Center is a free market 501c3 tank, uh, think tank, nonpartisan, um, nonprofit. Uh, our goal is to focus on breaking down public sector barriers to freedom in California. We focus exclusively on California. We don't talk about DC or international relations issues. There's plenty of other people that do that stuff. We focus solely on what's happening in California uh, as it pertains to government regulation, uh, legislation, law. Uh, we actually have three projects that are distinct and different within the CPC umbrella. One is what we call parent union, where we organize parents and people who are concerned about their children's education in such a way that helps advance some of those ideas, putting parents back into the education equation. We do another um, project called CLEO. It's our California local elected officials group. And that project is, is to help provide mentorship tools and skills for local elected officials or administrators at your city, county, school board level so that they don't continue to metastasize or build huge government programs or give in to, to union demands. And then our third project is called the Janus Project where we actually help people leave their union, their public sector union. And it's based upon, of course, the Janus decision in 2018 that says you don't have to pay into a union uh, to work for a work government job. And those three um, often overlap in a ways, but uh, they're three very distinct projects that the CPC does. And then we write a whole bunch of other issues, energy, transportation, taxes, transparency. We actually were one of the, uh, the first um, groups in the United States that started publishing all of public sector employees' Um, salary and benefit data. So if you go to Transparent California, that was a project of California Policy Center back in the day. How'd that go over? Uh, well, for the government unions, they hated it. Um, right. For the public sector so. employees, they hated it uh, because we don't just put up salaries. We actually put names to the salaries. So if you want to find any employee that works for a government entity in California, it's a 95% chance you're going to find them. And you're not just going to find their data in terms of salary. You'll find the benefits and others. And it's longitudinal. We go back as far as we can. We have a, um, a relationship now. It, we developed it with the Nevada uh, Policy Research Institute. And they've taken it over as one of their projects. But um, it's good and useful information when people say, hey, why are these cities making these decisions? And then you go find out that the you know the mayor is making like four hundred thousand dollars a year and, and having his pension and all sorts of other weird issues. So, you know, it's good on it, it's good in terms of accountability and transparency for sure. So I have a question for you. I was, I was sharing with you a few minutes ago that I'm native Californian and I left many many years ago. But California, my recollection of California, and I still have family in Southern and Northern California. Um, there is a tipping point, and I was trying to put my finger on it over the weekend, where California went from somewhat reasonable, and then they just tipped over the top. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I kind of, I, looking at it from afar, kind of recall it being the tipping point when Gray Davis was ousted, Schwarzenegger had taken over as governor, and he tried to do some changes, and the teachers' union just beat him over the head. And that that seemed to be, at least in my mind, where okay, California's done. <laughs> there's no there's no rationality to it anymore. Um, you bring up some interesting 
timelines. Uh, if you go back to the 1970s when Ronald Reagan was the governor of California, right. he had to make a lot of unpopular decisions um, as governor, but which saved the state for a period of time. And yet, at some level, he had to capitulate and sign into some very un. Um, I think unassuming programs that years later would grow and metastasize. Jerry Brown, when he was governor the first time, really increased the size of public sector unions. And that was something that was kind of a, a small remnant of what Reagan had done. And then you get to Gray Davis, which was really a guy who loved to use the blunt force of his position to move a lot of decisions. And there was a lot of corruption, obviously the reason for his recall. When Arnold Schwarzenegger came into office, that's when I actually moved to California, right before the recall um, happened. And so I was kind of new to the whole thing, but I watched a man who was willing to come in and as he said, blow up the boxes, you know, and really bring superstar status to the whole programming of, of governing California. When he got into office, he ended up hiring a whole bunch of people that were leftovers from Gray Davis. Mm. and capitulating to these unions. One of the big problems we had was a massive, massive funding problem in the state that was billions of dollars upside down. And so instead of going and making reforms, like striking while the iron is hot, right? Um, being the, the, the governator as he had promised to be, he stepped back and let kind of the unions run all over him. And it was at that point in time where their power, I think they started to understand their power, especially the teachers union, um, where they didn't have to give in to all these negotiations, they had a, a, me, a measurable amount of influence. And they realized they had a bunch of resources that came in because of their teachers' dues and other union dues. And in California, that's about a billion dollars a year. One billion dollars a year comes in in the form of, of union dues, whether it's teachers or the SEIU, uh, your police officers, fill in the blank. If they're a public sector union, $2 billion every election cycle buys a lot of election races and buys a lot of right. lobbying. Right. And things change when they realize they have that power. Yeah, it seems from afar. And, and again, I'm just kind of like observing from afar. Um, it seems like the Teachers Union, the CNA, California, California. Nurses Association, and on top of that, the SEIU, they kind of control the state. And yeah there's, yeah, there's no kind of about it. They do. And they do on a lot of levels. Um, one is the political stuff. They, they help elect the people that, that make the laws in the state legislative level. But they're there and they practically live in the Capitol. Right. And so you can't do anything. You can't suggest any tweaks to laws. I, I did a lot of pension reform issues. Uh, years ago, I worked for Reason Foundation. I was director of their pension reform project. I traveled the country to try to get pension reform in a lot of places. I actually wrote a book on pension reform. And we had some small tweaks that we wanted to see in California. And you would have thought that we were trying to kill people and like sacrifice our babies to, to Moloch or whatever. Yeah. By the sort of little reforms we wanted to. It was minor, minor tweaks. Jerry Brown eventually did some of these reforms in, in a bill called PEPRA. And it was, you know, it, it, like it was fine. It was good stuff, but it wasn't enough. But the, that, the amount of power that they have in these discussions is incredible. And nobody can get past that in the legislative that, session. California. Was that Jerry Brown part one or part two? Well, it was part two because okay. he realized that he had created a monster. So he was trying to tame the monster. Right. And um, he didn't tame it very well. 
And today we're still, the, the amount of problems we have, the unfunded liabilities in California are not measured in the billions of dollars, the tens of billions, or even the hundreds of billions of dollars. They're measured in trillions of dollars now. And that's just unfathomable. unfathomable. It's the state of California's budget situation is so precarious that we can have these huge tens of billions of dollars swings, but nobody's talking right now about really funding our unfunded liabilities that we have done since Jerry Brown was governor the first time. And that's 40 some years. So do me a favor because you you've done pensions and, and I kind of know the answer to this, but for listeners, unfunded liabilities, you want to describe that or define it? Sure. So unfunded liabilities are very simply, we have obligated a payment of something. Um, and in the context of California, it's one of a couple things. It's either somebody's um, pension or retirement benefit um, or their health care benefit after they retire, or it's a bonded debt. You know, if we put a bond out for some sort of construction project of schools or roads or whatever the case is. In the state of California, we have a lot of these pension unfunded liabilities have grown over the years because every year we were supposed to fund them at a certain level. We're supposed to pay our bill, our credit card, uh, for lack of a better term, and yet we only paid the minimum payment. And so the next year, you're hoping that your investments will create enough money to cover those costs. But investments, as you know, go up and down. And so not only do you have your what we call your normal cost, that amount of payment you have to pay, the credit card uh, full payment, but then you have the debt from the year before that you didn't pay. And then if you don't get the max on the returns that you estimated with your actuaries, then that chasm grows. And that chasm has just exploded over the last probably decade or so. There was a few reforms back in 2012, like I just talked about. Jerry Brown did some for CalPERS, which is the state, it's the general state um, retirement system, pension system is one of the largest in the world. And then he did some for CalSTRS, which deals with the teachers um, union, which required them years down the road to pay in more into their pensions. But the problem is it was never enough money. There was never enough control over constraining those costs. It's when you pay uh, public sector employees more money and give them more benefits, um, the, the costs just are pushed down further down the road and that unfunded liability just continues to grow. I think um, your analogy of credit card and minimum payments is probably the best I've heard because that's most people would understand that you're racking up the the debt on your credit card and not doing anything but making your minimum payments. Yeah, well, and at some level, you're like, well, I have you know a ten thousand dollar limit, right? So if I've only racked up a thousand dollars, only cost me a hundred bucks this month to pay that off. Well, I still have nine thousand a hundred you know dollars, whatever. What they forget is that that, that interest rate is huge. Right, And it grows really quickly. And so the month after, and if you get in this habit of just paying the minimum amount, then when it really comes down to paying that big dollar, because now you can't borrow any more money, then what happens? And unfortunately, the other side has made this sound like whenever you want to do pension reform, and again, this gets really heated, so I, I hope we don't bore a whole bunch of people with this, but they say, well, we can't take money from people from their retirement. And I'm saying, I'm not suggesting that. If you've made a commitment to pay somebody something for the retirement, then you should honor that commitment. However, you don't have to continue to make that bigger every year. And for new employees that come in, you don't have to make the same promises that you made to previous generations, right? So I 
I, I've written a lot on this, that we're going to be paying for our parents and grandparents' obligations that they made 30 and 40 years ago. In the future, my kids, I have five kids, my oldest is 18. Um, when he goes out into the world, he's going to be paying higher taxes for services that don't exist to pay down debts that he didn't incur. Right. And, or he's going to have to move. <laughs> which <laughs> which is a very likely possibility. I mean, right. you can't afford housing here. There's no jobs. The taxes are high. Energy costs are out the roof. And the education system sucks. So why would my 18-year-old, who's leaving my house in, an, in a few months, why is he ever going to return? Right. So which kind of brings us back to um, the beginning of this, which is why I contacted you. So they want to raise the wages right? The minimum wage, you just hit $15 an hour in January. And now the push is to have a referendum or a, a ballot initiative on the ballot in November to raise it to 18 over the next couple of years, plus index yeah, to inflation or uh, cost of living, right? A referendum by a very wealthy guy who is well-intended, but doesn't understand that when you start to mandate this stuff, one, one, you can do it by the legislature, right? So the legislature did this, increased it to 15 bucks an hour. But if I drive down the street to the Taco Bell, just down the street, they're already paying $17 an hour starting. Right. In my neck of the woods, 17 bucks an hour just to start making tacos at Taco Bell. Not to denigrate that work, but it didn't require a lot to do that. Nobody is working around here because of COVID and all that other stuff that's happening. So the fact of the matter is he puts this into law through a proposition, the legislature has very little, and I haven't read the whole proposition and analyzed it in terms of how much control the legislature has. But if you give that power to the people and they voted in because they're all like, well, of course we should pay more, you know, poor people more money, that will help. The problem is you can't fix that until you do another referendum or another bill or another proposition before the people. So you've taken that power away from the legislature to have a very calm, cool, and deliberate conversation, which in California doesn't happen that often, but at least it's somewhere it can happen. And you've now put it in statute where it can't be changed. And it's just, it's, it just makes no sense. So I, I had a conversation, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago with a couple of freelancers on the whole AB5, ABC test and the um, one of the freelancers said, you know, in California, they have a supermajority, i.e. the Democrats have a supermajority in the legislature. So, you know, going to talk to them is almost a waste of time. Yeah. Do, you, do you find that? Yeah. So I worked for 17 years in and out the legislature. I was up until 2020, I was a chief of staff for a state center from Orange County. And so I kind of saw the inside. And in California, you have two houses. You have the Senate, the upper house. There's 40 members. Um, divided geographically throughout the state. Each one of those members represents about a million people. There's just under 40 million people in California. And then in the assembly of 80 members, and they represent, it's kind of, I don't want to say nested, but they're pretty close to those Senate um, seats, and they represent about a half million people. In the state of California, you have to have a majority vote for most legislation, but there's some things like taxes and other special or urgent issues for which the legislature needs more than, than the, the majority of 50% plus one. But even at a, at a time and place when a lot of these things aren't that important, the only holdback Republicans had for a long time was to, to break the supermajority status where they had to have two-thirds vote to, to vote into a major tax or something. 
But a few years ago, they they lost that through some elections. The public sector unions spent a boatload of money to get rid of Republicans. Ironically, two of the Republicans they got rid of were both people that were willing to fund and spend on union stuff, but they were in purple seats, seats that you know had a strong mix right. of Democrat and Republicans. They won as moderate Republicans, which Democrats tell us all the time, hey, listen, we want to work with the reasonable and moderate Republicans. And then they went and cut them out and eliminated them. And so what happens is you get this harder extremes on both sides. And in, in, in the legislature on the Senate side, there's not enough votes on the Republicans to break any sort of vote that might want to increase taxes or continue to exacerbate this emergency um, measures and powers by the governor. Uh, there's all sorts of, of different places. So they, at some level, become irrelevant, unfortunately. And if you are somebody who's a moderate Democrat, there's no place for you to go because you don't want to be whacked by your more progressive wing. So while there are moderate Democrats that are in the legislature, they're less likely to actually do anything because they don't want to have their heads cut off. They go along to get along. Yeah, it's it's what I call there's two two parties in California. There's the kneecapping party. Uh, or the uh, the party of um, kneecappers or baseball bats, and there's the party of cats. And the party of cats are the Republicans that do whatever they want because they're independent. They just, they just do what they want. And the kneecappers literally will come in and say, ah, man, I heard your your legislative director, she's pregnant, and it's going to go on maternity leave soon. Is that right? And, and you're about to vote on the, on the budget. You're voting the right way, right? Because it would be terrible if she lost her job. That sort of stuff happens all the time in the building. And so if you're a Democrat who's anyone moderate and you care or concerned about your constituents, your legislation, your committee work, uh, or your staff, be prepared to have leadership come and knock your head off if you vote the wrong way. That's fascinating. We, we see this happening nationally as well in certain states. Um, is there any, any light on the horizon? Well, I think there's some. So we saw what happened in Virginia, obviously, and, and I don't want to overwork the metaphor because Virginia is a little bit different than California, but it is right next to D.C., which is a huge bastion for a lot of big government type workers. But Glenn Youngkin basically came out and said, listen, we've got to do what we can for these for these kids and, and push the, the teachers union to the side. Um, so that was helpful back in November. But what more recently happened in California, so we saw this recall of these three school board members in, in San Francisco. They got more votes to be recalled than they were actually originally elected for. That's a huge swing. Now, I try not to read too much into that because San Francisco politics are, are completely different than the politics anywhere else in the world. Uh, it wasn't Republicans that did this. I think there's like 10 Republicans in, 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 in San Francisco. So it's in not the, like in the, the entire city. Big, <laughs> right. It's not like some big center-right movement. Right. Uh, actually, in reality, there's 600, I think, thousand voters, probably about out of all of those. I think the number is 33, 34,000 Republicans. So again, not a huge number. Right. But these people were kicked out by 120, 130,000 votes when it was all said and done. So that's a lot of people are mad. But if you look at it, people realize they had swung pretty hard um, to one side where they couldn't they couldn't realistically protect them from the left flank. And so they had to throw them overboard. I think you're going to see that in other places. The other piece that gives me hope is I watch a lot of these Latinos um, in the state. 
especially in the Central Valley and in places like Los Angeles, where they've been taken for granted, where they're not given the sort of uh, preferential treatment that others are, and they realize that their family values are just completely different than what the left wants to offer. And so we're seeing them vote differently right now. Will that change in the legislature in the next election cycle? I don't know. But again, um, there's a reason that they call the Republicans the party of stupid. And so we'll see if they can. That's true. If they can maximize on that stuff, that would be great. But um, I have no idea if they'll be able to, to actually leverage those. Well, that that kind of goes to, um, again, looking at it from afar, you've got Northern California, the Bay Area, and then you've got Southern California, L.A. in vicinity. And, you know, even Orange County now is, I think they're blue, right? At least, well, well, decently so, at least in blue. terms, yeah, it's more purplish. I, they voted, I think, a way that reflected their their business interests, not so much their their political interests. And so they're starting to realize maybe they crossed the line on a couple votes. We'll see some very interesting races this year. And remember, in California, we lost population, at least in relation to other states. And so we lost a congressional seat. Uh, we probably should have right. lost two, probably should have lost three, to be honest with you. But, you know, when it all said and done, they didn't measure after the pandemic had really started up when a lot of people started leaving. There was a point in time where I had a friend a week. And I'm not exactly... I'm being honest here, the exaggerating, I'm not exaggerating. I would have a friend a week tell me they were leaving, moving out of state. And um, it's heartbreaking to see that happen. So you're not just losing good, solid taxpayers, but you're losing a center right vote. Yeah. And so I think all of a sudden you realize that you've got a lot of people on the left that, that, that don't want to be radical and don't want to be crazy. And so maybe they have to realign their thinking a little bit. And so maybe it, the pendulum will swing back to the center a little bit. I think that's the hope I'm looking for. But too many people um, have given up on California, and I think there's going to be a resurgence. The pendulum always swings back, but it can be brutal and painful too. Well, I, I think part of the problem is your um, your opposition is institutionalized. Mm-hmm. And like I just, to your point, um, I've got a, my whole family originated out in California, right? And I moved out of there and, 72. Um, but I've got a cousin and her entire family, including her two daughters, grandkids, they up and left California. And one of them's still on her way here. Like they're moving across country to get the heck away from California. And it's fascinating because she had told me recently, and we're in a pretty red state and she was on the highway in her Prius. And she said, you know, <laughs> we were texting back and forth. She goes, the truck drivers are really rude here. And I said, well, you're in a, you're in a Prius with California plates. What do you expect? So. Yeah. Um, she should probably stopped uh, halfway through the trip and change the license plates. Right. Yeah, we're yeah. in another state. And <laughs> I think she's putting there. some different bumper stickers on. Yeah. So, um, but it's, yeah, it's fascinating. I, my dad still lives in California. I don't think he'll ever leave and not because he doesn't want to, it's just, you know, from an age standpoint. Um, but it's, you know, again, it's like this last 25, 30 years, it's just like really gone way overboard. And- well, it's it, it, it's been a problem that's happened for a long time. And things like housing costs in California have only made it worse. Right. And there's no real willingness to actually address that issue. We keep trying to, we, the real we, the legislature, the government keeps trying to do these 
sort of topical, um, very superficial changes, you know, throw more money at their problem um, uh, type things. But we find out in places like LA, they spend $850,000 to house one homeless person. Like, like yeah. come on. You know, at some level, we like there's just a ridiculousness about it. We spent years trying to deal with the homeless issue, um, the drug addiction, which if you go anywhere in any major city, it's not just LA and Skid Row now, but you literally cannot walk in San Francisco without getting downloading one of the apps that will show you where all the syringes and poop is in the, in the city. And there's not just one, there's multiple of those apps. You now, what does it say about a city? Oh, just go to the <laughs> app store. Just type in San Francisco really? poop. That's it. Or syringes. Is it like real one. time? Yes. How you do they do that? One? Because they go down and people like literally will take pictures of it where they're at. They'll geolocate it so that you know where the safe spots are to go in San Francisco. But that's every major city in California because we've given up on dealing with people's addictions and mental health issues. And we tried for years to, to reform what they call in California the Lanternist Petra Short Act. That was the thing that was passed by Ronald Reagan, signed by Ronald Reagan in 1967, that was supposed to clean out all these mental institutions and rehabilitate people, except that the programs never existed. They never really came to fruition. And when you deal with mentally ill people, it's a hard, hard issue, especially for civil libertarians that don't like the idea of people giving up their rights or being forced to do certain things. But if most of those people, 80, 85%, my estimation on the street, are there because of their mental illness situation or co-addictions with alcohol or other drugs, until you address that issue, you're going to have cities that continue to fail in their ability to attract businesses or families or schools. Because why would you go to a place like that? It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, uh, that's... uh... That and on top of that, there's a, a headline that came out maybe a year or two ago where they de- decriminalized shoplifting in San Francisco to the point where you can steal up to, was it $989 or something like that? And it's only a misdemeanor if you get caught or is, I don't even know if it's a misdemeanor. Yeah, so in California, we did a couple of things. One was a building called AB 109, which was what was supposed to be a realignment. So all the people who are in the state prisons were going to move to the local jails. And then we're going to take and try to deal with people there, right? Instead of rehabilitating them and giving the locals the money to take care of these people, a lot of them hardened criminals. That's the reason they're in prison. Uh, We basically sent them down there and the locals are like, we don't want to treat these people. Uh, You're you're extending or stretching our resources so far, we can't actually do the things we're supposed to do. And so that was a problem. Then they went and they passed a proposition called Proposition 47, which, as you just articulated, decreased the levels of costs from, from, from felonies to misdemeanors. And so you literally will have people, and it doesn't take long, just go on Twitter, uh, just type in Prop 47 or California crime, and you'll see videos every day, every day of people walking in stores with bags. And the, most of the time, they're not even masked anymore because they don't care. They'll walk in, they'll just start dumping stuff in. Some people, times they'll yeah. walk in with calculators and they'll say, okay, let's get a certain amount. And nobody will stop that. Right. Nobody will stop them. And then they did it again. They passed another proposition called Prop 57, which did a, a few more of those kinds of things. So the people have kind of done this to themselves, but then we have a lot of DAs that refuse to um, enforce the law and really throw the hammer at these people. So in San Francisco um, and in L.A., you have two DAs 
that refuse to enforce the law. And both of those are possibly going to be recalled by the people. It's so bad in these cities. Well, there's uh, there's an article a couple of weeks ago down in L.A., and I don't know where it is in L.A. other than downtown L.A. that I think is BNSF or one of the railroads, Pacific Rail. Yeah, said, yeah we're not even Pacific, servicing. Yeah, because yeah, they're, they're just... Yeah, they're just breaking into the rail cars and taking all the FedEx packages. So yeah, you got to see the pictures of this place. It's amazing. I've seen it. Yeah, I saw the it's pictures. Just, I just don't know where it is in LA. Yeah, no, it's there. And Union Pacific actually wrote a letter to to the governor and to the city leaders in LA and said, "If you don't fix this, we will stop going through LA." Yeah, it's that bad. And like LA is a central port, LA and Long Beach. You can't just shut that stuff down, but the places are littered with packages that are broken into because these guys find these cars, they go, they break them in, they just start handing stuff out. It's complete lawlessness in most parts of California. And so the people leaving, this is a self-serving question, are the people leaving um, because they want to escape that and they don't plan on voting for that type of stuff in the states that they're landing in. Cause you see Austin, Texas, a lot of people from California going to Austin, Texas, and all of a sudden Austin's like deep, deep blue. Yeah. The, I have a brother in Dallas and he says to me all the time, don't California or Texas. Like yeah. if you're coming here to vote the way you, the, for the, you know, the crap hole you just left, get out of town. Um, my dad's in Idaho, Boise. Um, right. Another destination. Not endorsing, not endorsing this, but there are people in Boise who are so fed up with the California people that they literally will go and put notes on their cars saying, leave town. Like, we don't want you here. I have a really good friend who <laughs> he left Sacramento, moved up the, uh, to Boise. He moved in the coldest stack of 10 houses. And do you know how many of those were former Californians? Seven. <laughs> yeah. Seven, 70% of his neighbors are all expatriates from California. And so I can see the resentment in these other places. What they have to realize, if they're going to go somewhere and escape California, they can't keep voting uh, for the policies that, that let, made them leave the state in the first place. Yeah. And so that's, I think that's a real conversation happening with serious politicians in these other places. You see this happening with Ron DeSantis or Governor Abbott or, you know, um, other people who are serious about bringing good people in, but saying, leave your politics behind. If you want to do your politic thing, go back to California where it's working out so well for you. Well, it's, um, it, so let me ask another question related to that. Do, do those that brought this upon California realize what they brought upon them? No. And, and is it ignorance or malevolence? I think it's a mix between, but it, it's right in the middle. It's hubris. Um, I don't think that they really, really want to destroy, but they think that they can control all the factors that make a free society work. I'm a free marketer, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty solid conservative person. I don't hide that. I believe family values and faith can do a lot of things. Culture can move the needle. Andrew Breitbart used to say that, right? Um, about uh, politics being downstream of culture. But if we don't, if we don't get those things right, then the people who are making the decisions are going to make life hellish for everybody else. And not because they hate everybody else, but they think they control it all. And so there has to be some amount of uh, 
give and take that brings us back to a place where we can actually have a conversation about real good solid policies. I don't want I don't want dirty water or dirty air. I don't want pollution and garbage all over my area. But I also want to make sure that people are actually cleaning up after themselves and taking responsibility for their kids and you know the 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 decisions they make. Passing a whole bunch more laws and increasing taxes doesn't fix those problems. It just goes to bigger bureaucracies that cost more money that increase our infunded liabilities for decades to come and drives businesses and good people out of the state. Well, so I often refer to California as the Petri dish of bad ideas. And the, um, so I'll, let me come back to one and you probably know the name, Lorena Gonzalez. Yeah. And well, <laughs> yeah. So she, she was a union person who went into the state house um, and she did more than just AB5, but she was primarily you know, responsible for AB5, she and her cohorts, which like devastated when they did the ABC test, devastated a lot of California freelancers or gig workers, right? They're supposedly going after Uber and Lyft, and then they wound up targeting the musician doing gigs and the writers and Vox, you know, got rid of like 300 writers even before it took effect and all that stuff. So like I haven't put my finger on it. Did they mean to do that or did they, was it just unintended consequences? Well, um, I'm in that case, they actually meant to do that. So AB5 was based upon a really, really bad Supreme Court uh, precedent. California Supreme legis- Court. Yeah, the California Supreme Court, excuse me, uh, it was called Dynamex. And, and right. they decided to make all these changes. The problem was the court can do its thing, but the legislature could have come in and said, okay, yes, we have a company who abused the law. It took employees, made them contractors. It was a dumb idea. Too cute by half. But let's fix it in a wise and thoughtful way. But then Lorraine Gonzalez realized, oh, my gosh, I can now benefit all of my big government union thug people. So what I'm going to do is create this law that will now capture everybody except for the people that have donated to me. um, And I will make sure they're all kept out. And so you should have seen the internal wrangling around these bills. When AB5 happened... The Chambers of Commerce rightly understood this was going to be a huge, huge problem to them. And so they tried to get in there and have a very thoughtful and uh, deliberate discussion about what should be the case for dealing with contractors, independent contractors, gig workers, freelancers, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call them. And that spans the spectrum. Uh, I don't think we realize like how diverse are not you, obviously, you get it, but most people understand the labor law is so difficult to really nail down to one or two things because we don't, the economy has changed so much recently that you can't just say, I'm going to go work at the factory for 35 years and get my pension and go home. Right. Right. It's changed a lot and it's going to continue changing as we evolve post pandemic where who's going to work these days. And and why should I as a business pay, you know, all these expenses for things that, that don't matter anymore. So we're having this thing. Well, the union saw that as an opening and realized, wait, we can increase our ability to bring people into the union if they're employees, give them the ability to negotiate and um, and have their MOUs and all that kind of stuff. So there was a, I think part of that was malevolence on her part. The amount of negotiations, my favorite story was she passes 85. Then the during the process of that being implemented, realized, oh no, we've messed a few things up. So they have another bill to come in and kind of clean out and make more exemptions, right? But here's one of the things they didn't make an exemption to. 
was the minority newspapers. So we get really mad and upset about the internet taking news over. Local news is not a thing. The newspapers are dying. Well, you have a lot of papers like your black media, Latino media, small local papers that contract out with a lot of people to do photography and editing and and delivery of papers and fill in the the blank, right? The whole thing. There's very few employees they have anymore because they can't afford the cost. Well, she didn't exempt them. And that was kind of hard because now a lot of your black caucus and Latino cars are like, hold on, time out. Like, like it's one thing to go after the man. It's another thing to go after our small businesses that are trying to tell our story. Right. And so tearfully, she authors a bill. It's one of the best videos. I'll find it. I'll send it to you. Where she testifies against her own bill to exempt these people because she was mad that they wouldn't unionize as fast as she wanted them to. So well, tearfully presents the bill in committee and cries and says why they should not vote for it. But that was a sort that's the sort of like like people hear the story and say, no way. There's just no way. It's incredible to watch, and I don't even call it hypocrisy at all. I, I refuse to call the left hypocrites because there's no they don't have any values or base of values. Uh, they call, can call me a hypocrite because I do. Like I have a set of principles. They just don't, but it's hubris. Like these people, it's pure political power. And people like Lorena Gonzalez are about pure political power. And that's why she's no longer in the legislature. She's now becoming one of the most powerful union bosses in the state of California. Yeah, she went uh, just in January. She went over to the California Labor Federation, right? As, yeah, as and that's not a small thing. That's a big deal. Right. Yeah. And she wasn't elected to that position either. Um, I don't know the internal machinations of that stuff. All I know is that public sector unions in California are really good at making things happen. Right. Which brings me back to, is there any light at the end of the tunnel for California? Or are you going to just keep shipping all the good people across the country? (laughs) So we ship a lot of good people out. You're welcome. Um, But I have personal faith that California can recover. I really, really believe that California is the best place to live and to raise a family, not necessarily the current environment, but my kids are seventh generation Californians. And so this is not like some place we just showed up. This is a place we really belong to. Um, I'm actually originally from Colorado, but my wife's a sixth generation Californian. Uh, Her ancestors settled a lot of the part of the state. So it's kind of a big deal heritage wise. But I also tell people too, across the country, as goes California, goes your state. So laugh and mock us all you want. And that's totally fine to do. Like I can handle, I'm a big boy. But don't forget that what happens here, what happens in Sacramento does not end in Sacramento. And most of the really crappy policies that you're debating in your state house, I can almost with a surety guarantee it started in some stupid legislation in California. Right. And that's, so if you really want to That's the Petri stop, dish. Yes, exactly. And so I've been preaching this. If you really want to stop bad public policy in your state house, support groups like ours that are actually trying to do it in California. It's kind of one of these things you've got to kill it at the root. If you don't kill it at the root, it will grow and it will spread. And the seeds of destruction uh, will go everywhere. Big government powers are real, real thing. Um, and so that's why we spend so much time, like in California, where we have this Janus project. We spend a lot of resources to help people leave the union. And we hold their hand through the process too. This is a ton of intimidation. But if we can't beat them, then let's defund them. 
let's make sure that they don't have the money necessary to go forward. And we don't, we're not against teachers and public safety officers, government workers. We want them to have more freedom with their money and to make sure they can make decisions based upon their best principles and not advocate against their wishes this is what, what most of the public sector unions do. So I foresee that the next year or so is going to be really, really bad and difficult. I understand why people want to continue leaving the state. It's sad. It breaks my heart. But at some point in time, this whole thing will implode and it will implode in a big way because the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And so it requires adults to be around and to help fix the system. I'm trying to be that person. Can't do it on my own, but no, I appreciate the platforms to talk about these things because most people think, oh, just California. It's going to stay there. It's going to fall in the ocean and be all right. But it's coming your way. Well, I, I think that's the hope. But I think Arizona last year realized the impact of the immigration into the state from California. Um, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at a site that's talking about, you know, the top 10 reasons people leave California. One of them is the rising state taxes. And they're talking about uh, the marginal marginal income tax rate currently at 13.3%. They're looking to raise it to 17%. And why not, right? And when yeah. you think about that, add that on top of all the other taxes you pay, the highest transportation or gas taxes in the country, right. California, highest energy prices, California, that's a tax on you. You know, it's those kinds of things too. Yeah, that's, well, and, and have you guys ever done a study on just like what is the total tax burden on California residents? We have, I'll have to, I would have to find it out, but you can go through and look at things like um, the taxes that are obvious, the income, corporate sales, uh, gas, transportation taxes. Those are the obvious pieces. But then there's other policies in the state of California, which exacerbate those taxes. In fact, it's a tax that you haven't levied, but you'll have to pay the bill in the future. So it's your environmental stuff, your climate change, cap and trade uh, sort of costs. When you force food processors to assume a massive amount of cost to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, again, you can believe in climate change and whether people are going to mitigate or not, doesn't matter to me. But when you literally shut down um, food processors, well, guess what? What? They can't then take food from the fields, which 20% of all the food grown in the United States comes from California fields, the Central Valley. If you take and you shut that down and you cut it down by a significant amount, well, guess what? Those costs escalate. And so that's another tax on a lot of people that can't pay for their food because it's not there. And then you increase your housing costs because you're not willing to go out and to actually um, increase your supply of housing, and then you've got your property taxes, which are well, at some point in time were some of the highest. Proposition 13 back in 1978 cut that down a little bit, but you still have all these costs of constraint. Those are taxes for which the little poor people have to pay. They're highly regressive. Yeah, let me ask you something. Back up for a second to the high cost of housing. You just mentioned something that I don't think I was aware of. The, is there, you're not allowed to build more? Because I've got a uh, relative who lives, lived, I'm not sure where he's at now, but lived in San Jose and his house went on the market for, I think it was over a million dollars. Oh, and anywhere, anywhere else in the country would have probably been maybe 150, 200,000. Yeah. So if you go to, if you go to the Bay area, if you have a house that's 1300 square feet, 
uh, and probably in a 0.17 acre lot, which is pretty postage stamp, you know, regular size house for a lot of the country. If you're getting less than one and a half to $2 million for that, you're not getting enough money for it. Why? That's how bad housing is constrained. We just sold our house in Sacramento. We moved up north a little bit. And the market was flying so fast that houses were literally going off the market fifty, hundred, two hundred thousand dollars over asking price. So and that's so, a, that's a supply and demand issue, right? Right. So why isn't there enough supply? Um, environmentalists have shut the state down. So we have a we have a law in California called the California Environmental Quality Act. So at the federal level, it's called NEPA. And in the United States, there's just over a dozen, maybe a dozen and a half states that have some sort of environmental act that's like, that's like NEPA. The problem was it all started in California. And it started with saying, hey, we want to protect against massive developments that would have some sort of adverse impact upon the community. Well, who signed that bill? Um, Ronald Reagan, right? So you have the stuff that starts with Ronald Reagan constrained and small, but years down the line, it has been so litigated and so populated that just to comply with CEQA, it takes you at least a year and a half just to do the environmental review for a project. If you want to build some houses, it takes time to go through what the litigation is going to come. And people litigate under CEQA so much that you can estimate you're going to wait five to seven years just to build something. And it may be a house now, in that's a plot that already exists. That's developments right. or that is single home? It could be homes if you're in an area where it, uh, there's some sort of uh, law or zoning that's different. So in San Francisco, you have a lot of places that try to build houses, but they can't because they're in some sort of historical district or whatever the case is. Hmm. And so, or they're trying to build it on top of a business, right? So they're not building out, they're building up. But uh, San Francisco, just Google San Francisco and CEQA and housing and you'll find a hundred stories of people that are that have spent not just a couple years but probably decades waiting to build something so if you're not allowed to build anything because these environmental acts then forget it we have another law called the coastal act which basically says hey we want to protect the coast up and down the state california is a long and beautiful coast but that law extends miles into the cities uh or into the into the land that if you have coastal cities that grow at a, at a decent rate, even if they have property that they could develop out, they're not allowed to build um, if it doesn't meet these massive amount of environmental regulations. One of the most famous stories is the edge from uh, the band U2, mm. who's been trying mm -hmm. forever to build a, um, a mansion in Malibu on property. And it's probably going to be the most high tech house in the world, you know, not use as much electricity and water and whatever else, probably the most greenhouse you could ever make. And no, they keep shutting them down because they can. So if you're a millionaire and you can't build a house, how are you like just some sort of schlup that's working your nine to five job at the, at the you know, fast food business trying to build a house for your family in the middle of nowhere? So you have to drive to qualify. So a lot of people will work in the cities and then drive 45 minutes to an hour, hour and a half, two hours to their home because that's the only place they can qualify to build. And even then they're not building as many houses as they should. So you, you said that this all began with Ronald Reagan. Unfortunately, you know how many conservatives are just probably going to cry when they hear that because <laughs> you're blowing well, their, their preconceived notions about Ronald was Reagan all. was an amazing, he was an amazing governor, did a lot of great things. He was an amazing president. I have nothing but reverence for him. 
The problem was back in the 60s and 70s, nobody really understood what the environmental movement was going to do. And labor was a different stripe. We didn't have a lot of the public sector unions at that point, though there was some action going on. But when he came in to kind of say, hey, like, I'm I'm here for the, 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 the common man or whatever, I'm here to protect the environment, like, who wouldn't be? Like, I'm not going to propose that stuff. But over the years, all that stuff's been so litigated and so hammered that it's it's gone from the purpose was to keep clean air and, and clean water and all that stuff to an environmental cudgel that now unions can use. So in the state of California, we have this thing called green mail. It's not black mail. They use environmental laws like CEQA to negotiate higher contracts, which drive higher costs for most of these projects that could be done by a contractor, except for AB5. The unions know that, and so they can continue (laughs) to drive the prices up. So the escalation happens over and over and over. Yeah, AB5 is still in effect out there, right? Yeah, Prop 22, that was, I think everybody thought it went away or something, but AB5 is is still out there for most of the people. So, yeah, Prop 22 was an effort by Uber and Lyft mostly. There was some other DoorDash and a handful of other large multi-billion dollar corporations that thought, hey, we're going to fight this through a proposition, right? Again, back to the conversation. If you do through a proposition, there's some protections there. And, and if you want to change it, you either have to go through the courts and it's a hard, long process, so most people don't litigate it, or you have to go back to the ballot. The legislature can't have their hands on it. So instead of them fixing AB5 and the ABC test and all that kind of stuff, which they should have done, they were, again, two cubed by half, and these large corporations thought they could carve out a piece for them, give benefits to their drivers and all sorts of stuff, right? Um, they sold it. They spent $220-ish million to get it passed. So in California, when you passed the ballot initiative, it's a multi-million dollar effort to happen. They spend all this money and then come out and a judge says, oh, no, just kidding. Won't work. We don't care. So that's in litigation now. But now it's making people think, holy cow, if I spent all this time investing into a ballot proposition and a judge can just wipe it away, what's the point? And so hmm. we're working at CPC on a project to try to, to deal with protecting the ballot and making sure that that's not an issue. But uh, it's definitely something that has people concerned. If you spend a quarter billion dollars to do something and a court can wipe it away in two seconds, and oh, by the way, not improve the law at all. Yeah, uh, just exempt yourself it. from it to buy your yeah. way out of it. Interesting. I go on for hours to that. I, I mean, it's I, just... Yeah, I, well, so let me ask you, I don't want to take up too much of your day. I can spend all day talking about this stuff too. So it's fascinating to me. Um, how much time do you have? Uh I have probably about another 20 minutes or so. Okay. Um, so so you've got um, AB5 still on the books, affecting everybody but potentially Uber and Lyft, right? And DoorDash and a couple others. Um, you've got a minimum wage increase that is being potentially propositioned through the ballot. Uh, what else is going on? Well, in California... Um, this year we have a lot of, um, issues surrounding infrastructure type projects because we got a huge boon and additional funds during the whole lockdowns of COVID. A lot of people sat in, um, binged on Netflix and spent time on, um, Twitter and Facebook and other places 
all those companies are which based in California. And so right. they made a lot of money. Zoom is doing pretty well these days, right? Right. So you had a lot of billionaires made, and I don't want to say overnight, but the last few years, their bottom line increased substantially. And because it increased so much, the tax revenue for income and corporate taxes was insane. And so now we have all this money. The question is, are we going to now grow government by throwing a whole bunch of one-time money at long-term projects? Um, or are we going to try to actually deal with some of these immediate problems we've had? So for one um, example, California, which is a bill that would have created like a, a universal health care in a way, um, single-payer type stuff, mm -hmm. which the left talking about. Um, we remind people that in California, if the DMV and the uh, Employment Department Division can't take, or Employment Development Department can't take care of people, um, we don't know why the state's going to take care of everybody's health care. If you eliminate insurance and, and, and other sort of uh, health care systems, that's going to be a problem. Fortunately, that bill was benched, uh, but the fact that it made it to a place out of committee and to a floor vote in the assembly suggests that um, the radicals have kind of taken over um, and it was saved by a few moderates that just couldn't pull the lever, you know, the, the lever to, to, to vote for it. So that's a big deal. So that, um, that had to have been the, um, since they've got a super majority, that was not Republicans killing universal health care. That was Democrats killing universal yeah, health care, right? Some moderate Democrats that realized they were up for re-election this next year. And the bill originated in the assembly, which... They have two-year cycles. So um, they're up for election every single cycle. And mm -hmm. if you do a bad vote that's going to cost, I think it was estimated about $370 billion a year to pay for that, that program. The state's budget last year was like 266 for general fund. Um, you're talking about one and a half times the state budget just on healthcare costs. Right. Nothing else. So... They, they did the numbers and polling was not good. Um, and so there was a lot of progressives on the left and union members that based in your, your nurses union, SEIUs and, and those of the world really want this to happen because it's guaranteed money for them, right? It's growth in their leadership and their membership. Um, so they pushed hard and in fact did targets on the people that weren't going to vote or voted against it. So a lot of Democrats had to make a political calculation for their district to decide if this is a good idea or not. Um, so that died. Um, we have other issues going on surrounding wildfires and how oh, yeah. we deal with, yeah, how do we deal with all had, that. You guys with all your clean air stuff keep shipping all your smoke from your wildfires across the country. So for every two days you have a massive or major wildfire, that's equivalent of every car in California running for a year. So the amount of pollution, air pollution that we have coming out of the state of California from these wildfires, which have been huge, millions of acres in the last five years. Some of the biggest, I think out of the top 10 fires, and I'm going to script the number, but it's like seven or eight of the biggest fires in, in recorded history in, in the state of California have been in the last few years. And so that's largely a remnant of these environmental acts that stop the ability for us to manage our forests. One example was we had um, a community which had been going through the process to go clear out a whole bunch of trees, not clear cut, but manage then, you know, do some controlled burning, but they kept getting sued underneath CEQA. And 
right as they were about to um, get this work done, they were sued under CEQA, and I was a week or two later, the entire community burned out because of these things. Which that's one was that? Berry Creek. Okay. Um, that's the sort of insanity that happens all the time. It's just not talked about. And so wildfires, In- we really have got to have more money developed into really mitigating these areas. Can you back up to the statistic you just said for every day or two days that there's a wildfire burning? Two to three days they have a wildfire. It's equivalent to all of the emissions from every car in the state of California for a whole year. That is crazy. Yeah, so multiply that. In the state of California, we have entire months where fires are burning constantly. So I live in northern, uh, north of Sacramento, about 45 minutes not far from the, we're not in the foothills, but right next to the foothills. Mm-hmm. Um, if I were to last fall, look out and summer, look out this window right here, my, my window on this side and my front porch on this side, three of the largest fires burning in the state I could see from my house. Right now. And that went on for months. Is that so? Um, all of these, all these mitigations to stop. You know, we're going to build more electric cars. Gavin Newsom has said by the year twenty, what thirty-five, I think he said. And again, I haven't prepped for all these stats and stuff, so it's kind of off the top of my head. But I think twenty thirty-five, he said we're not going to sell any more gas-powered cars in the state of California. It's just idiotic. It's just it's just stupid because you're now okay. It's not tailpipe emissions. But you have to produce that power from somewhere. Where does that come from? It's usually coal plants or natural gas. So you're just exchanging the pollution from one place to another so that people in California can feel more virtuous about themselves. They actually ended all the contracts with coal plants, or at least the direct ones, back in 2008 and 2009. And so over the years, we've constrained our energy output to a lot of solar you know, fields and windmills, geothermal small hydro because you're not allowed to build right. big hydro stuff, big dams. Um, but we got rid of our nuclear power plants, which was at one point in time, 20% of our state's production were now down to about zero. Um, you've sidelined a lot of your natural gas, not realizing that when you have windmills and solar vota- photovoltaic and that kind of stuff, you have to peak and balance that power. Um, yeah, you guys get brownouts, not, right? Do you get browns? Yeah. Brown and blackouts. So what they'll do is they'll actually plan power outages for places in the state where it's really dry and the winds are going crazy. They know that the power line infrastructure is so old in the state and they haven't fixed it or they don't want to underground it because it costs a lot of money, but they can't fix it. So they literally shut your power off during a windstorm so that they don't have more fires start. And that could be for days. And imagine if you're a restaurant or something that has refrigerators or you're a nursing home that has old people on ventilators or a hospital, or a school, you just go down the line. What can you actually do when you start randomly shutting off power because of weather? Yeah. Have I like, yeah, I'm sorry. Your, your audience what's, is probably just done. Like, <laughs> No, I, I think it's like, fascinating because point? people around the country need to know this stuff because it is creeping up in different parts of the country. You know, New Jersey, they are following you with AB5 a couple years ago. Um and we're seeing this stuff at the national level, just in, you know, whether it's a little bit or a lot of bit. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what's the energy costs been like in terms of your electric bills? Oh, huge. I mean, if you're in a place like mine where PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric is the main carrier, last summer we bought our house 
we didn't really understand that air conditioning and all that stuff. You know, it's a big, bigger house than we had. It was, it's on property. Um, but our electric bill was four times what it was in Sacramento. Hmm. And so in your rural parts, they're taking a lot of these costs and, it, and it's hard because um, if you're dependent on your property being far from, you know, the populace, you get power out there, it's going to be heavier. If you're in the Central Valley, like places like Bakersfield or Fresno, it gets hot in the summer. Air right. conditioning is essential. But if you're on the coast, you don't care about air conditioning because your, your temperature is 60, the 60 degree range year round. If you live in right. the Bay Area, you don't care. It's not hot, so you don't turn on air conditioners or even heaters. You might have something portable, whatever, but not a big deal. But if you're in Bakersfield, that air conditioner starts in March and doesn't end till October. And so yeah. you're running that almost full steam the entire time. That's expensive. Those are expensive costs. You have a pool in those places, right? And, and so it's all those kinds of things that eat up the, the money. If you're also moving water from one part of the state, the north part of the state, to the southern part of the state, California has 40 million people. 10.2 million of those live in Los Angeles County. So one out of every four people lives in L.A. County. You have to move a lot of water to get there. That takes a lot of power to pump it over the mountains to get it to you. And so those are the sort of costs that people pay in their water bills. They pay with their electrical bills. They pay through all of the other mitigation factors they have, the, the climate change cap and trade stuff, the environmental regulations, the fish protections. Um, the state of California has announced that they're not going to be giving a lot of water allocations to the different farmers, even though I have water rights. Why? Because they want to protect the fish. So if your cost of, of your nuts, almonds, fruits, um, different things that come from California increases dramatically this year, you'll understand why. It's all these crazy policies that drive those costs, energy being one of the top. So the fish thing, okay, I'm going back decades ago. I think there's the Delta smelt thing. Yeah, that, right. so what are they doing to the farmers now? So a lot of these farmers aren't allowed to take their allocations of water because it doesn't allow for delta smelt or salmon or other kinds of fish that come in and out of the sea to go up and down the rivers. Hmm. So right now when the snowpack was actually pretty decent come December, we actually had some good rain in the, the late fall and early winter, but then it stopped and it hasn't rained much of anything or snowed in the, in the mountains. So that's kind of your natural dam, right? It's your frozen dam. And so that waters, it starts to melt off. It melts off too early in the spring you should be filling your dams, but guess what they're not doing? They're not filling dams because they got to let the fish flow free. Right. So well, the so we drought have issue's been a long time, though. That's you've guys. And we had, haven't built a new dam in California since the seventies. Right. So didn't or, you have or one break? 80s. Didn't you have one break a couple yeah, of years ago? Just up the street from my house, <laughs> Orville Dam, one of the yeah, largest right, dams Orville. in the state. Yeah, right. and they literally had to come in and like just pump tons of concrete in there to, to keep it tight because they had saved some water, but then they had massive storms that came and overwhelmed the system and they had to start letting it go. And it just basically eroded a third of, you know, the wall uh, for a period of time. And most people in this area had to evacuate. There was a good chance that a lot of property was going to be damaged. Thankfully the rain stopped and it wasn't as bad as it could have been, but 
That's the case for a lot of these old dams. And we have two dams that were approved back in 2014 or funds to build them. Um, do you know how many of those dams have been built since 2014? No, probably nothing, Zero. right? Nothing. Because... They haven't even got a bulldozer out to start. That's eight years ago. Is that because so there's still have... litigation? Yes, and the environmental laws have shut them down. So we have a lot of people that just want to build water projects. There are other ways that we can pump water back into the aquifers too. The subsidence in the Central Valley, it's like 80 to 100 feet depending where you are. That means that you're, just all the water that used to be underneath your, your Central Valley, it's been pumped to a certain level. So you have to replenish that at some level, and when they do, it rises back up a little bit. But the problem is we can't even get enough water to pump back into the aquifers. Right. You know, so, I, yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I vaguely recall, um, and this is probably 20 plus years ago, there's a fight, not really a fight. There's this, in Arizona, they called it the uh, central, it's cap. I, I can't remember what it stood for, but it's basically taking water from the Colorado River. And the fight was over Arizona versus California getting what's coming off the river. And I don't know how it was resolved. I think Arizona gets some, California gets some. But I heard probably in the last four to five years that by the time the river flows down to the uh, California, Baja, California, the little inlet there, that there's nothing in the water. I mean, there's nothing in the river. There's no water. Yeah, it's empty. Yeah. Well, it's even better than that. So the river actually flows through California. Is it Arizona or California? And then comes back up to California. Um, and it's called the New River Area. Mm. But in Mexico, they don't have any primary laws. So most people just throw their trash in the river. So we have this problem where it goes down to Mexico. Whatever water is left, they throw all their trash and that comes back out to California. We have to clean it all up. No cut. <laughs> it's completely polluted. Yeah, it's just, the, the amount of public policy stupidity in the state is immense. And people wonder, why don't we elect a really smart people to come uh, to the legislature and represent us? And I remind them, well, because they're really smart. They don't want to get their heads cut off to make hard decisions, to be the adult in the room. And for most of the legislators in the state of California, this is the best job they ever had. The best job they yeah. ever had. And so they're happy to be called assemblyman or senator and go to a lot of really nice fundraisers and parties and be adulated, the funniest person in the room, the best looking person in the room. And that lasts until they're not in office anymore. Then all of a sudden the, re the reality hits them. And I can name, I can just start listing off former Democratic legislators who are very, very powerful that once they get out of office, you would confuse them with, with uh, Trump Republicans. Like they, they realize how crazy the legislature was. Oh, that's interesting. Well, it's like, politics is like a big popularity contest, really. It's true, and I think it's the same in most state houses. I would yeah. say it's more extreme in the California legislature. Yeah, that's kind of a given. Yeah, right. Well, so let me uh, let me ask you: How can people check you guys out, California Policy Center, and what you all what you all are up to? So California Policy Center, you just go to the website. Um, we have, like I said, these three projects, our parent union, supporting parents and the education of their kids, giving them a voice and a choice. We have Clio. If you have local electeds who want to know uh, how to be better local electeds and not be forced to do things by the the, uh, the bureaucracy or the, the public sector unions, uh, join us. Even if you're not in California, I think we can be helpful. In fact, I'm leaving this call, this this podcast, to do another 
um, Zoom conference call with people who are just done. They want to run for local elected office and they don't know how to do it. So we're actually have four sessions where we're training them how to do these things. And we'll do it for anybody. If anybody's interested, we can provide that through our Clio project. And then if they want to, to donate, obviously, uh, we're a nonprofit 501c3. We put good money to good use, and we really work hard to make sure that the people of California are represented in a way that they're not represented anywhere else. So uh, we're on so, Twitter and Facebook and other places as well. So real quick question, I'll, I'll let you go. But um, the Clio project that you're doing, do you do that with folks from other states? We don't traditionally do it, but we're trying to expand this process of, of creating a, an educational platform where they can come in and learn about bonded debt or transparency issues, taxes, how to communicate with their constituents, the open meeting laws, the basic nuts and bolts of government. It will be specific to California, but it can be replicated in most places. And in fact, we've, we've partnered with Pepperdine University in LA and to create a certificate. So when people go through this process, they'll actually get a certificate at the end of the saying, hey, I'm a certified Clio educated member on local government issues. And they can use that to, to help better the governance in their different places. That's interesting. Well, Lance Christensen, thank you for joining Labor Relations Radio. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation because I've always been looking at California, which is my native state, from afar and just watching it crumble a little bit, a little bit at a time or a lot of bit at a time. So anyway, well, let's thanks. do this again, Peter. It was a blast. I, I appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks. No problem. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, that was Lance Christensen from the California Policy Center, and I really appreciated him coming on at such short notice. After we got done, he had sent me additional links, so I've already linked a bunch of things under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio, and in addition to what I've linked, uh, the links that Lance sent me is some background as to what he was talking about with the policies that are affecting Californians that stem back, in some cases, decades. In any case, um, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I did want to mention to you, I have invitations out to people from the other side of the table, so to speak. So I know some listeners want to have a balanced approach. Um, There's a couple people, one who's a socialist, the other is a writer that I've respected for a very long time, but he's definitely on the other side of the Labor Relations table, so to speak. Um, In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out to us on Twitter, it's at WorkplaceRPT. And on the website, you can uh, go to the comment section under this episode of Labor Relations Radio or uh, give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio.